So we're in this awkward spot right now of having finished a series and then having uh, about three weeks or so before Advent. And so what do you do? Um, Do you go back to Luke, which is what I would love to do. That's where we started this year. Go back to Luke for a, for a couple of weeks and then, and, then, and then go through Advent in preparation for Christmas or do you do something else? Um, and so what I'd like to try to do over the next several weeks is I'd like to make this an extended Advent for us, an, an extended period of anticipation, uh, an extended period of coming to see the, the work of Jesus Christ. We talked about him as being that common reference point In letting you see from each covenant of the Old Testament, there are six of them, so six weeks, letting you see from each covenant in the Old Testament, starting in Genesis, working all the way through uh, Jeremiah or Ezekiel, depending upon which passage you use for the the new covenant, letting you see Jesus. That's that's really what we want to do. We want to put Jesus on display. And um, we really want... For the first coming of Christ, which is what we celebrate in terms of Christmas, Jesus who came as Emmanuel, to kind of set for us this expectation, this enthusiasm, this anticipation, you might say, of what we anticipate in terms of his second coming, right? So Jesus' first coming initiated something for us, this work that he did for us in his first coming that guarantees the finished work that will happen at his second coming, right? And because he came in humility, we anticipate that he's going to come one day in glory, right? So, so how do you illustrate that? How do you kind of set a picture for that and kind of kind of paint and illustrate what that looks like. This already and not yet. That's kind of the, the theological term of what we're going to be talking about. This, this already work of Christ in his first coming that helps guarantee and fix for us the finished work, this, this not yet part that we're still anticipating. It's still in the future. It's still coming, but it's going to happen, all right? And, and, and the best I could come up with is, so, so, so just bear with me, okay? Bear with me. Um, Kings Island has some roller coasters, right? How, how many of you lo- like roller coasters? All right, I see a lot, a lot of young people. How many of you used to like roller coasters? <laughs> there we go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, roller coasters just have a hard time. I, they just don't agree with me anymore. My, my, my brain gets scrambled. I walk off and like, I'm so nauseous. But, but, but one of my favorites at Kings Island is called the Diamondback, okay? Now, if you ride a roller coaster like the Diamondback, you have to sit in the front seat, you have to sit in the front seat because then it's just you and the track. I mean, it's just, just, you're there, okay? But the Diamondback is, the first drop is 215 feet, straight down, at a 74-degree angle. And, um, and apparently, it gets up to 80 miles an hour, okay? Um, so what Jesus' first coming was like, it's like that first hill. All that work, it's clanking up the hill, right? And then, if you're, especially if you're sitting in the first seat, then you're waiting for the rest of the cars to kind of catch up and crest that hill, and you're kind of sitting in suspended animation. You're like, ah! 
It's just you in the ground, right? And then all of a sudden, boom, it just lets go and it's, and it's done. That, that work has been done and there is no turning back. There, there is no like, ah, I think I want to opt out at this point. No, no, once you get going, the, the results, that all that potential energy of that height is going to culminate in a work of moving through the track. 80 miles an hour, apparently up to four Gs. That's why, that's why old guys uh, like me can't, can't do it anymore. In a really, uh, <laughs> in a broken way, the, the work of Jesus in his first coming, all of the work that he did in becoming Emmanuel, becoming God with us, and then, and then coming and living in perfect righteousness, dying on the cross, rising again, set in motion the already, not yet, that we're going to celebrate through the rest of this series. The, the, the work that Jesus initiated in his first coming that kind of guarantees it's going to happen. All that potential energy has taken place. It is a guarantee of what's about to happen in the future. And the promises that we see in Scripture, that these covenants that God made to Adam and Noah and Moses and Abraham and David, all of those promises are like glimmers. They're like little foreshadowings of what that future event's going to be like. We, we, we saw him show up and he met all the conditions of that first coming, but there were some things that were not yet done. There's still future. And just as Jesus fulfilled those specific and clear prophecies in the Old Testament for his first coming, we're like, I know what the second coming is going to look like. I know what Jesus is going to do. I, I know what to, to look for, what to anticipate. So I'm just going to be really straight with you. I, I do have an agenda. My goal in my heart, my prayer for us as a church is that this Advent will be for us what Advent was for Simeon and for Anna. Let me remind you, okay? Thinking of the the, the narrative story, the birth story of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. So here's your Luke for, for today. Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 26 says this. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout. Here it is. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. There was this enthusiasm, this expectancy, this anticipation, this like, I can't wait for Jesus to come. He is gonna come. He's been promised. It's gonna happen. He was so convinced of that, it just filled his heart and enlarged his expectation. There was a waiting, an active waiting of Simeon as he anticipated this first coming of Jesus Christ. But the same kind of waiting is, is seen in the next narrative of this woman named Anna. In verse 36 it says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And she, then she was a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, 
worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day and coming up at the very hour she began giving thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. A waiting heart. And a waiting heart is a working heart. A waiting heart is an active heart. Look look at her actions. Her active waiting heart. She's in the temple. There is worship. Her life is punctuated by expectation. There is prayer. There is fasting. And by the way, just just another encouragement for you to be part of a prayer time we're having here uh, on Wednesday. And so I would encourage you to to, to come and to be part of that uh, as as Jack will, will help to lead that. A waiting heart. That's my prayer for us as we anticipate Christmas. That the, that the first coming, the first advent of Jesus, the promise of his coming that was met in actual fulfillment will help awaken our hearts to the reality of the second coming of Christ and it will just fill us with expectation, anticipation, and it will, it will guide and direct our efforts it will help to govern the things that we say and do. It will, it will organize our priorities. It will set them all in focus. It will help to provide alignment for your life. It will help you as you're in different conflicts of different relationships and you're burdened by different uh, pressures that you feel, whether they're pressures in school or they're pressures at work. You're like, I- I'm going to... I'm going to pull through this. I'm going to work heartily as to the Lord and not to men because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, I'm just expecting Jesus is going to come and I want my life to be a reflection of that reality. I want when people see me to say, he or she is living for something that is different than what I'm living for and they see Christ in you. That's my goal. That's my desire. These who were in Jerusalem were waiting, waiting with confidence, waiting with dependence on the word, waiting because of a clarity of a message. They were waiting because there were promises from the past, promises from the Old Testament that anchored their soul in present reality, present expectation. And that's what I'd like to do this morning as we work through the different covenants, uh, the covenant that God made to Adam. And we get to see this morning, as you see in your heading, that Jesus is the new Adam. And that's really good news, that Jesus is the new Adam. We're gonna see that from our text today. It begins in Romans chapter five, verse 12. Romans five, verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to get the Bible in front of you. I think it's page 942. That's where we're gonna be this morning. And we're gonna talk about this inescapable problem that we have because of Adam. Adam is guilty, and you know it, and I know it. We We're familiar with this story. But because of Adam's guilt and because of Adam's sin, there are consequences that we're going to see in this passage. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin so that death spread to all men because all sinned. There are consequences. There are problems. There this inescapable problem that we see here in this passage, this universal problem because of Adam. Do we have that slide, Larry? The first point, the inescapable problem because of Adam. What is that problem? What is, what is the first problem that you see in our text this morning in verse 12? I, hear, I think I heard it. 
The sin problem. There is a problem of sin. The problem of sin. We find in verse 12, the first part. Sin came into the world through one man. Sin is anything that we think, say, or do that breaks God's law and makes him sad. I, I appreciate how uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship has kind of simplified that definition for us. Sin is anything that we think, say, or do that breaks God's law and makes him sad. That's, that's, that's the simple answer. So sin is lying. Sin is taking God's name in vain. Sin is wanting anything else that somebody has but you don't. Sin is disobeying your parents. Sin is loving something else more than you love God. That's idolatry. Sin is taking something that doesn't belong to you. That's stealing. Simply, it's rebellion. It's disobedience. It's when we do the things that step outside of God's original purpose and plan for our lives. It's rebelling against the specific and clear word that God has given to us. And what we'll see through this passage is that there's a universal problem. A universal problem of sin. It is inescapable. It not only affects every person who has ever lived on the face of this earth, but it also affects every part of every person that lives on the face of the earth. Because of Adam, we're all polluted by this common problem known as sin. And the totality of the problem becomes clear as we continue to read through this passage. By now you're familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. You know that they were the representation of God on the earth, the physical representation of God in in terms of stewarding the creation that God had made, made in the image of God, placed in the garden, placed his head over all creatures. They were not God, but they were to represent God and thus represent his character represent his life, represent his justice and holiness and righteousness to the world. Stewards of his creation, but under his authority. David describes it this way in Psalm 8, beginning in verse 5. He says, You have set him, made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep, and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. God gave Adam dominion. But what we're going to see in our passage today is that while God gave him dominion, they became dominated. They became under subjection to sin, under the consequence of death. That's what we're going to see today. They were given one simple command, right? You may eat of all the trees of the garden, except you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did they do? They did the very thing that God said not to do. Adam and Eve sinned, and as a result, we find the devastating consequences of that sin that spread to not just themselves, but to every one of their offspring, as we see here in our passage. All humanity is affected by sin. But in, one, in what way? In what way were they affected by sin? We'll get to this a little bit more in more detail in just a moment. But just for now, I want you to know that Adam stood as a representative for all humanity. In some mysterious way, because Adam was gonna be the procreator of all of the people that would come, 
his seed was represented, represented us in his sin. Meaning, we were all there in that way. In, in some way, we were all there in Adam, in his seed, when Adam sinned. He not only represented us, but we were there sinning with Adam in that way because he would be the procreator of the rest of humanity. We call that federal headship or representative headship. That is kind of the theological term that we're talking about. This federal headship or representative headship which deals with another theological term that we talk about in terms of imputation. Something that has been given to us. Something that we received because of somebody else's behavior. Adam was this representative head for all humanity. He chose to sin and thus his sin and guilt then was passed on to us. His nature became our nature. As Adam would have offspring with Eve... And Adam as a physical and spiritual being passed on his heredity, passed on his DNA to his offspring. He would also share in his physical characteristics, but also in his spiritual characteristics, inheriting this sin nature that Adam had. And because of this, there were consequences. Because of this, as we're going to see in a moment, there was death. But before you say, wait a second, that's not fair. So Adam sinned and I'm guilty? How is that possible? Well, maybe we can understand it a little bit more in this way. Many of us who have gone to the doctor have had to fill out the medical history um, that, uh, that they put in our hands, the medical history section. They would ask questions something like this. Does anyone in your family have heart disease or has suffered from a heart attack? Uh, has anyone in your family ever suffered from diabetes? Has anyone in your family ever had high blood pressure or cl- high cholesterol or asthma? Has anyone in your family ever suffered from cancer? Or has anyone ever in your family suffered from a stroke? Now they ask these questions for one reason, right? They know that heredity, they know that genetics is a big factor in terms of you receiving the, the corruption the decay from your family, from your mother and father. We understand that while that's not fair, that's just part of the way it works. And in a limited way, maybe in a fuller way, we receive the same characteristics of our first father and mother. Not just the physical characteristics, but also the spiritual characteristics. And so it's fixed It all began with one man and what he started and cresting that hill, the work that he did in committing sin and rebellion against God, now we, as his legacy and offspring, suffer the consequences of that sin. There is a problem of sin, but it moves on. It it gets worse. We find in the second part, there is a problem of death. A result of inheriting sin, the consequences of sin, that sin nature it leads to death as we see therefore just as sin came into the world through one man in death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned again we need to orient ourselves so we don't miss the point of what Paul is trying to say here it could have two two meanings two possible meanings first it could mean that death spread to every man because every man sinned individually 
That's a possibility. And that's true, by the way, because we know that from Romans chapter 3, 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So, so that's true. But is that what the point that Paul is making here? And the second possibility is that death spread to all men because all men sinned in Adam. This is the principle of imputation. That Adam's sin was then attributed to us. Adam's guilt and death and consequences attributed to us. That we are in some way in Adam. Is that the point? In order to come to an answer, we might be helpful for us to, to think about the, the correlation, the contrast that Paul is making in the rest of this passage. The, the implication of the first, that, that we all inherit death because we all sin, the, the implication of that the, the, would be this. So that justification, the right standing that we have with God, would also come to every man individually because of every man's righteousness and righteous standing before God. Do you you see that? The alternative, of course, is that justification spreads to all men. The righteousness that we receive comes through one man, Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. And so in this passage, Paul is trying to set up this principle of headship. The headship of Adam, which leads to sin and death, and, um, sin and death, and then the headship of Christ, which results in life with God and righteousness. So death spreads to all men because, because of Adam's sin. And this, of course, was the warning that God gave to Adam and Eve. In the garden, he told them, in the day that you eat, you will surely die. They, they knew it. It was clear. They knew what to expect. And so when they disobeyed God, when they disobeyed God, they may not have experienced the immediate effects of physical death, but it was inevitable. It was coming. The, the, the train had crested the hill. The, the potential energy was all there. It was a, a guaranteed result. It was inevitable. The, the sin that they had was going to lead to death, not just for them, but also for their offspring. But, but more, much more importantly, the, the death that they really experienced was a death of a spiritual life. The death of separation from God. Not just a, a, a physical separation from God, but a, but a physical separation, a spiritual separation from God as he is judging and punishing their sin. The implications of sin was massive. There are several that I, that I have there in your notes. First, it impacted not just them, but it impacted their offspring. It impacted their legacy. It impacted every one of the kids and their kids for the rest of history. It was a widespread, massive implication for all of their legacy. Second, it impacted not just their present situation, but also their future situation. There were immediate consequences, right? This is just the beginning, though being kicked out of the garden, they would now experience continued pain and heartache and loss and difficulty in work and sweat and unforgiving ground and thorns and bugs and thistles and weeds. And then as we see in chapter four, the death of a son by the hands of a son. And the only answer that they would have to that is, we did this. When Cain kills Abel, 
The only thing, the person they can blame is we did this, Eve. This is our fault. The consequence of sin that spread not just to their present situation, but continued through generations. The third is it impacted their physical life, but also the spiritual life. I've touched on this already. Separation from God, cut off from his favor, kicked out of the garden, physical pain in childbearing. All of those implications, not just physical, but also spiritual. And finally, it affected them as individuals, as people, and their offspring, but it also affected the entire creation. Every part of the universe was touched and impacted because of the sin of Adam and Eve. All of the earth and the universe was plunged into corruption, into ruin. We'll look at that a little bit more as we go. Death and decay, natural disasters, disease, predators and prey, shark attacks, Grandma's getting swallowed by pythons. I just read about that this past week in Indonesia. I can't even imagine the horror of that. The depth and the breadth of the problem was total, complete. Not that all things were as bad as they could be, but there was no part of the universe that was untouched, no part of a life that is uncorrupted because of sin, untainted because of sin. There was a sin problem, there was a death problem, but no, we move to verses 13 and 14, and we see that there is a dominion problem, a problem of dominion. Notice, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, uh, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Sin existed as soon as Adam and Eve sinned. And sin and death reigned before God even communicated his law, his standard to mankind. (laughs) The one command that Adam and Eve were given in the garden about not eating the tree of of knowledge of good and evil no longer applied because no one lived in the garden anymore. And yet, death continued to reign. Sin continued to reign from Adam to Moses because people continued to rebel against the authority of God, whether they knew it or not. Now there were at least three specific commands that were given outside of the garden or in addition to the commands of the garden. First was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we see how at the Tower of Babel, those who were there stepped out and rebelled against that command because they, while they were fruitful and multiplied, they did not fill the earth as God had called them to. So, so God, in, in his uh, action against them, confuses their language and spreads them out. Then, of course, you have a man should leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. The design for marriage between one man and one woman in a relationship, a one flesh union. We have an example of Sodom and Gomorrah, how that city stepped outside of God's original plan. And God saw that all that he made, and that it was very good, this, this creating God who created things that were good, and Cain comes against the creation and design of God by taking from God what he had created in killing his brother, Abel. The rebellion in the examples that we see throughout the scripture of rebellion, even against 
a limited number of commands. And yet the hostility of these people against, rebelling against their creator was evident. But we see here, tucked away in verse 14 at the very end, we see a foreshadowing. We see a glimmer of hope. While there is a problem, we see that Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, meaning there's a solution. There is an incredible solution. While there is a problem, Adam was just a type. He was just a symbol. He was just a representative of what God had, had in mind for the future. The master plan of God for salvation had not been ruined. The master plan of God did not meet, need to have adjustments. He didn't have to navigate this unplanned scenario. From the very beginning, Adam was to be a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of this Christ figure, this future Adam figure that we now we see as we turn to verses 15 to 17. This incredible solution that comes through Jesus. Notice, but the free gift, this is verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Do you see the point that Paul is making? Contrasting the one man of Adam and his trespass against the backdrop of the one man, Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his grace, and this free gift. Jesus is the one man, and Jesus is the solution of the headship problem. Jesus is the new head. He's uh, the new Adam. He provides a way for you to enjoy the benefits that God had intended to give to you initially in Adam. But since Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they were broken. But now resolved in the person of Christ. Notice verse 15. One man's transgression. Verse 15. One man's gift of grace. Verse 16, one man's sin. Verse 17, one man's trespass and righteousness through the one man, Jesus Christ. In verse 18, one trespass. Verse 18, one act of righteousness. Verse 19, one man's disobedience. Verse 19, one man's obedience. The new headship, the headship of Jesus. And the question that you must answer for yourself this morning is who is your head? Who is your head today? We all start in Adam. We all sinned in Adam. We all experience the consequence, the physical consequences of death because of Adam. 
and all the decay and all the disease and all the pain and all the heartbreak that happens on this earth because of Adam, we can experience. But it doesn't have to end there. You can have a transferred head, a head that will help lead you to obedience and righteousness and life in the declaration of you are righteous, this justification that happens before the throne because of the righteousness of Christ. It happens through this free gift, this free gift that we see five times throughout these verses. God has given it to us through his special free gift of Jesus. And all the consequences that we see through this passage the consequence of death in verse 15, the consequence of condemnation in verse 16, the consequence of being under dominion in verse 17, that while we were supposed to be those who dominated, we are those who are being dominated by sin. We are captives. We are slaves, as Romans chapter 6 will say, slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness because of a new head. Christ's free gift leads to three amazing benefits. The benefits of grace in verse 15. The benefits of justification, which is being declared righteous, not because you are righteous, but because of Jesus is righteous and his, his righteous life has been accredited to your account if you believe. And finally, we exercise dominion. Dominion that we were intended to exercise. That, that's what we see here at the the last part of this uh, verse 17 it says if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive abundant grace and free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ there can be restored dominion through the righteousness of Christ he gives us access to a whole new way of life as we wrap this up and draw this to a close, I want to draw your attention to verse 17 because it will be the key that will unlock the door to some of these verses that may seem challenging to you. It says in verse 17, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace in the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. There is something available, this contrast of headship that's available to us, but it's something that we must receive. Something that we must enjoy as we partake in the gift that God has given to us. Now that's really important because as we come to verse 15 and we come to verse 18, it helps to clarify maybe some of the confusion that might be there for you. It says in verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Okay, so let me walk you through this. What it seems to say on the surface, without that previous explanation, what it seems to say is just like the one man's sin spread death to everyone, the many, so also the free gift of God leads to the, the justification of many. Does that mean that everyone's going to be saved? Do we believe in universalism? Do we believe that everyone is going to heaven? That Christ paid the price and because he's paid the price, then we all have a free pass. 
Verse 18 kind of amplifies this when he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Who are the all men that Paul is talking about? It's the all men who have received. It's the all men who have transferred the headship to Christ. That while everyone who is in Adam will experience death, so also those, everyone who is in Christ, who has made him the head of their life, will enjoy now the benefits of that headship of Christ and enjoy justification and righteousness that he has to give. Of course, we saw last week that justification happens through faith. Romans chapter 3, 21 and 22 says this. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Whether you're a Jew, whether you are Gentile, whether you can trace your lineage back to Abraham and these covenant promises we're going to see in a couple of weeks. The, the justification that we experience, the, the, the declaration of righteousness that we receive from God comes one way. It comes through faith in Christ as the only way to salvation. Faith in his finished work of forgiving, of, of paying for our sins and making a way through faith for us to enjoy the benefits of relationship with God. Romans chapter five says this, therefore since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We enjoy the benefits of this new headship in Jesus Christ through faith in Christ. But there are a lot of other solutions or a lot of other uh, ways in which the work of Christ provided solutions for the sin problem in the garden. We just run through them uh, briefly. First, there is a solution to eternal life. Notice in verses 20 and 21 of our passage, it says this. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. While there may be a physical death because of our relationship to Adam, he has, we, are, we are his offspring, we've, we've inherited his DNA, his sin problem, we will still die. But because of Christ, we can enjoy eternal life through this new headship of righteousness in him, faith in him. 1 Corinthians 15 helps to draw this out for us. In verses 12, it says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ has solved the death and resurrection problem being the first fruits of the resurrection for us. Christ has also provided a solution to sin and death. We find as the passage continues in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says this, for he must reign, speaking of Jesus, until he has put all things under his feet. 
The last enemy to be, to be destroyed is death. For this perishable body must put on imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? God has provided the solution to the death and sin problem. God has also provided a solution to Satan's dominion problem. As we see in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, that the promise to the serpent in the garden, this covenant promise that God made to the serpent is, someday, Satan, this woman that you tormented, her seed will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And so on the cross, Jesus died and he, he initiated for us this finished work that we begin to see here in Romans 15. Or 16, where Paul is saying to this church, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. And the final culmination of that is in Revelation chapter 20. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The already not yet, the fulfillment, the initiated work of Christ on the cross that cemented the deal, fixed it forever, that Satan would be crushed, will be finally realized in these last days. And finally, the solution of a renewed earth. Romans chapter 8 talks about the interchange between this corruption that has taken place because of sin. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory to who? The glory to people? The glory to people and someone else? <laughs> Paul will describe this glory is being waited for is a glory that will come not just to people but also to all creation. Notice, for the creation waits, there's our word, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly the adoption of sons, the resurrection of our bodies. There is coming a day will not just those who have Christ as their head, but all of creation will experience the renewed, restored power of the work of Christ on the cross, and it will be experienced by the earth in a literal, physical way. For those of you who have the updated set of notes, I have a list of passages there for you that shows you from the book of Isaiah in particular all of the ways in which the earth will be renewed or the earth will be restored. Things like renewed worship. Things like the lion laying with the lamb. The 
the, um, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. A little child will lead them. The, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. All of the things that were, that were set in the garden will be renewed in this last time. God will make all things new. He will demonstrate his power to overcome the effects of sin in every way so that everything is renewed as God intended it to be renewed. So what do we do with this truth this morning? Well, we celebrate the first coming of Christ. We celebrate that fulfillment of Christ in coming in, in his uh, incarnation. God became flesh and dwelt among us, but it sets the record and the promise for us is fixed. His future coming is going to be a reality. So it's my prayer for us as a church that the second coming of Christ will be such an imminent reality for us, such a, an eager longing for us. It will change the way that we do life, the way that we study, the way that we work, the way that we relate to our families, the way that we speak. Every part of life will be governed by this pressing reality of the coming of Christ, and it will change the way we live. Oh God, do a work for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Give us as your people, like Simeon and like Anna, this eager expectation of the consolation that is coming. And may it align our hearts to your purposes and your mission. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you as you go.